0: Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is John Chisholm, and you might not have heard of him, despite the fact that he is the co-CEO and former chief investment officer of Acadian Asset Management, which runs nearly $100 billion in institutional money uh, all around the world. Most of it is here in the U.S., but a a healthy uh, chunk, about a third, is uh, overseas money. He has a fascinating background, uh, an aspiring rocket scientist who worked at the MIT um, Instrument Labs before taking a gig at State Street and then eventually him and his partners launched Acadian about 32 years ago. Uh, They are a quantitative shop and have a very, very uh, interesting approach combining essentially uh, fundamental factor models into a quantitative uh, system. And it's really very, very interesting. They've put together quite a fascinating track record uh, over time. If you are at all interested in quantitative approaches, factor-based investing, big data, artificial intelligence, the way to approach markets uh, from a data-driven perspective, then I think you're going to find this conversation absolutely fascinating. So with no further ado, my interview with Acadian Asset Management's John Chisholm. My special guest this week is John Chisholm. He is the co-CEO of Acadian Asset Management. Previously, he was chief investment officer. Acadian manages $86 billion in almost 75 countries around the world. Uh, He began as an analyst at State Street Bank. Uh, Previous to that, he was a systems engineer at Draper Laboratories, which really is a great place to start. John Chisholm Welcome to Bloomberg.
2: Hi, Barry. Thanks. It's great to be here.
1: So systems engineer at Draper Laboratories, which became known as the MIT Instrumentation Lab. Is is that right? How did you find your way from MIT to uh, the instrumentation labs?
2: When I went to college, my passion, my, what I was excited about was really building or designing spaceships. Uh, this was in the early 80s. Uh, so uh, so
1: you were a rocket scientist. I was, I, I was, was? A, I was a wannabe,
2: aspiring rocket okay. scientist, exactly. And uh, so I got my undergraduate degree, but I found my senior year, I was, I'd gotten really interested in investing, and I was spending a lot of time mostly just reading about investing, you know, whatever it was, journal, business publications, journals. And uh, when I decided, okay, what do I want to do now? I thought, well, I'd probably want to go back to grad school. Do I want to do finance, investing, business, or do I want to do... Um, aerospace. And uh, I had a, had a, um, an opportunity to apply to several different programs, so I had both. I had a finance opportunity and an aerospace opportunity. I thought, why don't I try to test both out? I'll get a full-time job here in Boston area. The only place, there's not a lot of aerospace jobs in Boston. Mm-hmm. Draper Labs is one that works on guidance systems. So if you've got a, a satellite or a missile, you try to figure out where is, it, where is it going to go? How does it get there before GPS? had right. a guidance system. So uh, so I worked there full time, and I got a part-time job, like sort of after-hours job, working with a fellow named Gary Bergstrom, who was later one of my co-founders at Acadian. He'd been a portfolio manager at Putnam mm-hmm. and uh, in the 70s, and then he left sort of off on his own consulting for money managers, uh, consulted at the time. His big project uh, when I was working with him was for State Street. Uh, later State Street Global Advisors. Mm -hmm. And we helped uh, build and design their first international index fund. And then later on, some international active strategies. So that was sort of a part-time job. I went back to, I, that made me decide, that was more interesting than the aerospace stuff I was doing at the time, that made me decide to so, go back.
1: So uh, that's what when you said to go back, you really started your first full-time job in finance, was as an analyst for State Street, is, is that so, right? So the
2: State Street job was, a, uh, was also a part-time, that was also while I was at school um, uh, working for them for like, uh, there was some time off in January and then the spring semester, I worked for them as a potential employer. Uh, but in the end, uh, Gary's goal was to launch a asset management firm. Uh, myself and we had another uh, colleague, Churchill Franklin, and another colleague, Ron Frazier. Uh, they all came aboard. We all came together about the same time around 1987 when I graduated. And uh, and so we, we launched Acadian as an active money manager at that point in time. So
1: that's 32 years ago, an active manager as well as a heavily influenced by – Quantitative strategies, is that a fair statement? We're,
2: we're, we're a quantitative manager. Uh, we were all, you know, my background, aerospace engineering, um, uh, all, all quantitative. Uh, Gary's background, Gary had gotten a PhD from MIT. Uh, so we were all very quantitative, but quant at the time uh, was not as sophisticated as what quant mm-hmm. today is, right? There wasn't any machine learning. There wasn't any big data. There was, you know, little data. There were statistics. Right. right, so you know what's the average payoff to value, um, and how do we build a portfolio that captures that payoff? Very simple, uh, quantitative tools that we used back in the middle eighties.
1: So, do you consider yourselves today an active manager, a quantitatively like I think about firms like um, DFA or any of the Pharma French-based um, factor models, and they're somewhere between active and a quantitative screening approach, how, how would you describe Acanian?
2: Describe us as active. So most of what we're doing is highly active, uh, potentially high tracking error against a benchmark. We, we have the flexibility. So we can build low tracking error strategies. Um, this ties into this concept of capacity. How much money can you manage and right. still expect to add the value your clients are looking for? And typically, the more money you manage, the harder it is to add value. Um, so at lower at levels of active risk, lower expected value added, you can manage more money. There's some clients who um, are happy hiring managers for that. They're also usually happy paying lower fees. Mm-hmm. right? So you really have to trade off both from a perspective of adding value and from a perspective of running a business, where do you want to be? Most of our strategy is highly active, but we have some that are shading more towards um, enhanced index.
1: Mm-hmm. When you say enhanced index... You're taking a basic index and then adding a little flavoring to it to move it away from the benchmark?
2: Yeah, so for example, we might say enhanced index would be if we have tracking error of less than 2%. If we have 1.5% tracking error, just means what's the standard deviation of the expected returns versus Mm -hmm. the benchmark. Um, 1.5% tracking error would be enhanced index strategy. You might only expect to get 1.5% excess return associated with that net of fees. If we had a more active strategy, we might, expect, we might see 4% tracking error. We'd expect to get about
1: 2.5% active return net of fees. Mm-hmm. How do you avoid the, the challenge, as, as Bill Miller uh, described it, of um, active managers who charge active fees but are effectively are closet indexers? How do you clearly differentiate yeah. yourself from that group? So so there's two
2: parts to it. One is what, what's under our control, what we can do. We can build portfolios that are active in the sense that they, they are very different. They look different from the benchmark. They have um, high, higher levels of tracking error. They have high active share.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, the other part of that is in, is the client's job. So if the client hires 20 managers like that, they're still getting close to back right. back
1: to an index. Let's talk a little bit about your quantitative approach and I was noticing on your website, you describe a four-step process. And really what that is is strategy, signal generation, signal consumption, and then process. Mm-hmm. Can, can you explain what that means to <laughs> to the perhaps the layperson who may not be familiar with a quantitative approach?
2: Absolutely. Let me, let me start with the signal um, generation part, because that's maybe the, the part that'll be easiest for, for people to, to start with. The... Um, the basic idea is there's different characteristics companies have. Those characteristics can be, on average, predictive of returns. So, for example, one characteristic is just is how expensive does a company look on whatever metric, P-E ratio, right? So you've got a company that has a P ratio of 8 and one that has a P ratio of 40. If that's all you knew about those companies, which one would you want to own? If you look the last 50 or 60 years globally, you'd say, I want to own the P-E 8 company, right? On average, it's going to do better. The problem with that is you can have a 10 year stretch where the PE40 company kills the PA company like we've just had we've had right. you know Amazon value has not what, what done you, well what would you rather own right the last 10 years would you rather own Amazon or would you rather own uh, PG&E right? right I mean so well those
1: are the two biggest extremes you can you could really say <laughs> so I,
2: I picked those out of not hopefully it's not quite but that bad
1: but it's true generally Growth stocks have done very well. Value stocks have stunk to join up for a decade.
2: So, so how do you get around that? Um, so let's say you believe, on average, value is going to outperform. Like Some people might not believe that, but let's say I do. I want value in my portfolio, but I don't want to underperform for 10 years in a row. What can I do? I can take other characteristics that I believe are also predictive of return and combine those with value. So I might say, for example, um, quality measures. Right. I want companies that are well-managed. How do you define well-managed? Well, managed? well dozens of definitions. But let's say one definition is uh, inventory turnover. You have companies that turn over their inventory uh, more frequently than companies in the same industry, Mm -hmm. right? And maybe that's a signal that on average has some payoff associated with it for companies in many industries. So now I've got value and I've got this. Let's say uh, a thing people talk about a lot in markets is momentum. Mm -hmm. So I've got momentum. Companies have good momentum. Um, They've been performing. They've been outperforming their peers for the last you know, six to 12 months, uh, maybe that's indicative that on average in the future they're likely to outperform for the next, say one to three months. I wanna wrap that in. So you combine all these different signals and you've got what you historically people call a multi-factor model, right? right? And so now, even if value does badly, maybe momentum and quality and these other things do well enough to allow you to still outperform, uh, which is you know, always the goal uh, uh, for for us and for our clients. And, um, and so that, that's sort of the, the genesis of signals. It's just there are different types of characteristics that we use to help predict company returns, and we then combine them. So when you say signal consumption, a couple of pieces of that. One is how do you combine these things, right? Is the payoff to value the same as the payoff to quality? Well, probably not. Um, so you have to figure out what do I expect to get? If I'm looking at it, does it differ by the type of company I'm looking at? Is a tech company, maybe it has different drivers of return than a utility. And so I have to mix the weight on those signals, depending on what kind of company I'm evaluating. Uh, and so that's part of consumption. Then the second part of consumption is, how do you implement that in a portfolio, right? So ultimately, I'm going to hold stocks in a, in a portfolio. I'll hold Amazon, or I won't. I'll hold pg e or I won't. What's my weight going to be? Hopefully, it'll be... Last ten years, hopefully high on Amazon, lower zero on, P- but but the idea is you've got to then turn those expected returns that you're getting from the signal generation part of your process into portfolio positions. At Acadian, we use a pretty quantitative approach to do that as well. We use what's called an optimizer that basically trades off the return expectations we come up with from the signals mm-hmm. into and maps those into portfolio positions by trading those off against transaction costs. So if I'm trading. Again, Amazon, Samsung, a big liquid company, transaction costs are probably going to be pretty low, almost negligible. But if I'm trading a a less liquid company that may be more efficiently priced, then the return opportunity may be much greater, but I need to now account for what's
1: it going to cost to get into the position and what's it going to cost to get out of the position someday. So what you're describing sounds a lot like traditional factor-based investing. You're describing... Um, value, describing momentum, quality. Uh, When we talk about liquidity, I always think about cap size. How does your approach differ from factor investing, or am I asking that question wrong? Are you effectively uh, a pharma French factor type investor?
2: No, it's it's a great question, Uh, and in in some ways our approach is very much like factor investing. In other words, we consider these different signals, we consider them to be types of factors. What's different is that we integrate the factors. So for example, let's suppose you just bet on uh, momentum factor by itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some periods, if you built a portfolio that has the most attractive, whatever it is, 10% of, uh, let's say, US momentum stocks, and then the least attractive were shorts, or you just went long, the most attractive 10%. There are some periods where your portfolio beta, your sensitivity to market movements, might be, might be two. So you might have a huge amount of volatility in the portfolio. And there's other times when your sensitivity to market movements might be uh, very low, might be a beta of 0.5. Why does that matter? It impacts how you can control risk. If you're doing these single-factor portfolios, for example, um, unless you're very careful about how you build them, you are likely to take on all kinds of unexpected risks in the construction of those portfolios. With a multi-factor approach, you're not... Beholden to any one factor. You've got all these different characteristics you can emphasize in the portfolio, and you can trade them off, and it allows you to manage risk uh, better. Portfolio construction um, can be a lot better than what people do when they're doing. When people talk about factor investing, uh, if you look at a typical factor ETF, um, it's not built in a very efficient way, it's more costly to investors in ways that the investors can't see, things like how they trade the portfolio. So if they simply take a rank order of companies based on some factor Mm -hmm. and they rebalance, they buy some of the most attractive ones that have just gotten into that list and sell some of the ones that have fallen out, that can be a lot of turnover. And there may be times when you want to hold on to something that's become less attractive because it might be expensive to trade out of it and it hasn't fallen that far. Right. So it's important to do to, to be smart about how you use these factors. And I'd say the key one of the key things we do is we worry a lot about the engineering of our process. How do you put these factors together? How do you minimize the slippage, the transaction costs, while still getting exposure to the underlying factor in the portfolio?
1: Quite fascinating. Let's talk a, a little bit about what it's like to run a global organization. You're headquartered in Boston. Congratulations on the Patriots! Thank you. Um, you were at the game. Uh, you mentioned
2: uh, I was at the game. Uh, first time I've ever gone. So you don't know how long the Patriots. You know this might be their last Super Bowl in a while. Yeah, I've heard it that like before. A good idea to go.
1: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, you have affiliates in London, and Singapore, and Tokyo, and Sydney. What other countries are you located in? I so, mean, you know, I know you have clients in. We've,
2: we've got clients in probably 30, 35 countries, but um, really the c- coverage just Singapore, Sydney, Tokyo, London. We are thinking because of Brexit, we may mm. need to open an office in Dublin, um, perhaps Amsterdam, but there's enough uncertainty there that we haven't actually pulled the trigger yet.
1: Amsterdam. So, so if people – I keep asking this, and I'm getting very different answers from very different people. If Brexit happens, hard or soft, and London is no longer – the central finance location for Europe, where where does it go? Amsterdam doesn't really seem, seem like the place. Hmm. Um, Geneva, Stuttgart, I mean, I, I can't – Paris, some people have floated. None of them seem to make sense.
2: I, I think Frankfurt's got the uh, economic, in many ways, the commercial center of Europe. A lot of people don't love Frankfurt because – I lived near Frankfurt for a bunch of years – it it's not always um, doesn't have the cultural reputation that Paris does, for right. example. That being said, it's a very comfortable city to live in. So I think Frankfurt will do well. That all being said, you know, if if we did something with another office, we're we're just basically opening up an office to meet the regulatory requirements. Right. We'd still keep London. That would still be a major center for portfolio management. Uh, you know, for our team, for client service team.
1: So your client base is uh, primarily institutional and public pension funds and other large uh, investors. Are they mostly U.S. located? Or are they around the world? What What's your mix?
2: So our right now our mix is probably seventy thirty um, U.S. non U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we from a business perspective, you know, as a firm, you want to be diversified. You know, so having a fair amount of non U.S. exposure with our clients is something we strive for. We think there's a lot of great growth opportunities in terms of just the, the growth of pension markets, of, of um, institutional investor markets in Asia, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still growth in Australia. Um, in, in Europe as well, there's pockets. Uh, you know, A few years ago, Germany really didn't have defined benefit pension plans, slowly evolving a little bit. So there's, there's definitely opportunities.
1: Don't most of Europe or don't, doesn't much of Europe have – Some sort of a retirement system covered by the government? How do you operate around that? Or is that their social security and it doesn't take the place of a real retirement?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of variation, but a lot of Europe, you know, like the UK, for example, you've got public pension plans. Just like in the US, you've Mm got uh, state of California CalPERS and CalSTERS. Well, in the UK, you've got um, local authority pension plans. Um, and you can sort of think of them as the equivalent of public plans here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got large companies based in the U.K. that have private pension plans. So there is some state provision, but again, just like in the U.S., you have Social Security, but that doesn't exclude all these other types of pension plans.
1: So in your list of countries, I didn't hear a whole lot in China. Is Hong Kong attractive or is mainland China possible? Or if has the government made it too challenging to set up shop there?
2: No, the government's actually moving to liberalize. So it had been very difficult for a non-local investor a to, shares, invest, to invest in, in, in Chinese assets and to manage money for Chinese institutions. Um, we do manage money for Hong Kong clients, but that's sort of a separate still a separate um, regulatory structure. is Is that why
1: but, you're located in Sydney for that part of the world?
2: Uh, Singapore is is we're oh, serving exactly. right now we're serving Asia X Japan out of Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, but but China's is liberalizing, and there's plenty of uh, non-local managers now setting up shop to manage money for the for Chinese institutions in China. The challenge is, uh, in China, you need some scale. You need a partner because you can't touch the retail market without a local partner. Right. And there's only really four big institutions, you know, that you've got that are like sort of the equivalent of a Calpers, for example. Um, so that 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 market, the institutional market, is very narrow. And the rest of the market, the retail market, you need a partner. If we found the right partner, I think we'd be very excited about doing something in China. We're certainly doing some work there. Uh, we've we've. I had some people not fully full time based there but spending a lot of time in the market. But that's something remains to be seen whether we'll find the right opportunity to to really be a player there.
1: So you previously were chief investment officer and now you're co CEO. I have so many questions about both. So are you still working in a CIO capacity as well? Number no. One.
2: So so I, I'm I'm still interested. I still go to investment policy committee meetings but you know, if you're if you're taking on a new role, and you've picked someone to succeed you in your job, you really need to give them the ability to run mm-hmm. that function. We've got a great successor. My successor, Brendan Bradley, is our CIO. Mm-hmm. Um, started last year as CIO. He's been with the for a long time, and got complete confidence in his ability to manage the the investment function. Um, I still participate in some of the meetings, and I I'm interested in the research, and I talk to. Talked to lots of the investment professionals. It's part of my job as CEO, is is being in touch. You know, what does an investment firm do? We invest for our clients, uh, so it's still important. But Brennan is managing and leading the investment team.
1: And you're a co-CEO, which sounds like it has a whole lot of uh, complications and and issues that would come out of that dual CEO role. At least we've seen that with public companies. How do you navigate that? Is there a clear distinction between who is running what? Tell us a little bit about your coaching. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Let me, let me do that, because um, it is a great question. Uh, we, we went through a succession process. Our former CEO was stepping down, was retiring uh, from the CEO role. And so uh, myself and one of my colleagues, uh, Ross Dowd, were internal candidates for the role. Uh, we have a selection process where we had an equivalent of an executive committee. Uh, essentially, you think of it as eight individuals running the firm, making that decision. We were two members of that group um and we we both shared our views on what's our vision for acadian where do we want the firm to go what would we like to do differently with with our executive committee Um, it turned out what we were very well aligned in terms of where we wanted acadian to go so when we looked at um sort of are there situations i have a lot of respect for ross my current co-ceo he has i think a lot of respect for me he comes from a marketing client service background i come from the investment background and we, we both wanted each other to remain at the firm, thought about how can we do that, and we looked at examples where there had been co-CEO structures in the past at other firms. The ones that worked relatively well, um, and there are some, um, generally you had co-CEOs with highly aligned visions and that were able to uh, work together to uh, provide a single voice to the firm, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't want somebody coming to Ross getting one answer and then coming to me and getting a different answer. Right. And we, we thought, given the fact that we, in fact, do have highly aligned visions, we do have areas of expertise that are complementary to each other, uh, we thought this is something that not only could we pull it off, but it would actually be beneficial for Acadian. Uh, so we're, we're now a little over a year into the role. Um, we think we're managing the firm effectively. We're getting feedback from our team um, that that's the case. And, uh, and I think it's working extremely well so far. Um, we... What we typically do is, issue comes up, we will discuss it together, we'll figure out where are we, what are we looking to do. Um, And there are times when, you know, it's an area Ross has a lot of expertise in, defer to him more. Um, There's times when it's an area I've got a lot of expertise in, defer to me more. Uh, It's great when we do need to be in two places at once, right? He can be in Tokyo and I can be in Boston or vice versa. Um, one of us can be doing top meeting with some of our clients, another one can be running internal meetings. So uh, it really helps us, I think, be do a more effective job of managing the firm to have the structure we have.
1: Quite interesting. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the marketplace today. Are you still seeing the same sort of mispricings in securities that perhaps were so abundant a decade ago?
2: Uh, the mispricings have changed a lot. So, if we take any particular signal that we've used ten years ago, and we look at the payoff to that signal today, it's lower today, mm-hmm. right? So, typically, whether it's inefficiencies being squeezed out of the market, it's arbitrage by different types of investors, whatever it is, you know, typically the payoff to these characteristics decreases over time. Mm-hmm. So, as a result, we're in a way we're on a treadmill. We need to keep on finding new ideas to replace the old ideas that aren't working as well anymore.
1: So. When you say these the, the payoffs to these ideas um, decline over time, is that all of these ideas? Is that a function of we had a giant reset with the financial crisis? Hey, anytime the markets lose 57% of the value, you have to think that some value is going to be created and a lot of babies get thrown out with the bathwater, or is it just the nature of every good idea eventually runs its course?
2: I think it's really a little bit of the reset idea. So there's, no, there's, there's definitely a pattern that differs a little bit. The rate of decline in some of these things accelerated during the financial crisis, immediately after the financial crisis. So, and the, the payoff to value is the biggest one, where it's clearly been the worst 10-year period for value globally post-GFC uh, that we've seen in the long-term history, whether it's the US history or longer history. That's different. That all being said, a lot of the factors, it's an average thing, right? There's some signals that still work you know, today, not much worse than they worked 10 years ago. But the average signal, the payoff decreases a little bit every year.
1: Hmm. That's quite interesting. Quant has been around for 30, 40 years or so. Do you think things are very different based on the rise of, you mentioned earlier, big data and artificial intelligence? How has that affected how... Acadian approaches quant investing, or is that just something that is a background noise that affects the market overall?
2: Yeah, I think there's, um, there's no question that the uh, machine learning and, art and big data, artificial intelligence, those are early days, right? Those things are starting to impact investors and how people invest, but we're still in the early days of that in quant, let alone in finance in general, and there's a lot more to come. Um, but I would say things have changed a lot since the '80s and '90s. The the sophistication, the not not so much big data, but just any kind of data now is a lot more available mm-hmm. uh, than it was then. So we have a lot more information, and quants can do things today that they couldn't do twenty years ago. Fundamental investors could maybe do them for a small group of companies. Quants couldn't. Today we can look at all these. Like we we have industry specific information about lots of companies that we just didn't have access to 20 years ago.
1: Is, is it the technology and database or is it actually the specifics of the data itself that's changed so much?
2: Yeah, it's, it's both. So the techno- no question, the technology and the database access, um, the power and speed of databases and of software and processing in general has increased tremendously. That makes a lot of things easier to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, machine learning, those algorithms can be very computationally intensive. And you, with the hardware you had 25 years ago, you couldn't do these things today. Today, you can do them on your on your laptop in some cases. It might mm-hmm. take a while, but there's things you can do on your laptop. If not, you go to Amazon Web Services and scale up processing right. power, and you've got everything you need in terms of the sort of the processing computational aspect of things. Uh, so that's changed a lot. But also, the data itself today is much broader than it was. I got started. You got a PE, you got a PB, you got a price to cash flow, you got a market cap, a price, and maybe a dividend yield thrown in, and that's there. That's that was your data. Right. That was like 1984 ish, and then um, shortly after, you started getting analyst data electronically.
1: What What do you think about some of these alternative data points that people are pulling from either satellite data? Hey, here's all the ships moving oil around the world. Um, or parking lot activity to determine how well retailers are doing. Is, is any of that potentially useful and valuable to investors or is it just um, a bunch of, of geeks playing with some new tech toys and, and kind of having fun with it? it
2: it's both. So the, on the latter point, the, you know, we, we have an analyst and if we have a satellite data project, we have no problem getting somebody to volunteer, put their hand up and say, I'd like to work on this, this will be fun, right? right? So that's true. It's potentially valuable now. Whether it's actually valuable to any individual and in, any particular investment firm depends on their style and their process. So let me let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, if you've got a satellite data, let's say you're getting your parking lot, your infrared images, um, and you're getting information about you know parking lots, um, and that's if you're following retailers and um, investing in retailers is a big part of what you do, that can be useful in predicting over the short run revenues. You've got to have a lot of infrastructure, you've got to know all the locations, you've got to be able to aggregate that in quasi real time and uh, satellite coverage at high resolution at uh, quick successive short time intervals mm-hmm. is still expensive. Um, so you've got to figure out, is it worth it to your process to do that? If you only 1% of the portfolio uh, have that you have invested in retailers, maybe it's not really gonna move the needle that much,
1: right? Mm-hmm. So so let's talk about some other things that don't involve satellites. This has been a, let's call it, atypical um, political environment for the past couple of years, not just the Trump presidency, but Brexit and the financial crisis and the rise of the Tea Party. How does a quant shop manage those sorts of non-market inputs, or does it all just come out in the wash and it's not really all that important.
2: I mean, there's, there's two sides of this. One side is what I call risk management, right? So can you if you can observe some of these risks, and you don't observe them in a standard quant risk model because they're, the quant risk models are typically backward-looking, they're not forward-looking. So you've got to, as a professional investor, think, what are some of these risks that maybe aren't priced into the risk models that are looking at the historical data, but that could impact the portfolio? Um, and let me give you an example of such a risk. Uh, one, one risk is um, we, we manage one strategy that's a low volatility equity strategy. So what we're trying to do there is reduce the risk of equity markets. Um, a cap-weighted benchmark, let's say, in the U.S., it might have a 12 to 14 vol, and we might want to produce a 10 vol, for example. Um, and what that means is somebody gets the same risk return that they get on a cap-weighted benchmark, but they get it with less risk. That's very helpful from an asset allocation perspective. When you do that today, though, what you're doing is you're taking on a lot of interest rate risk because these lower-risk companies typically tend to be higher dividend companies, companies Mm -hmm. that are more sensitive to interest rates. So if you're worried about a rising interest rate environment, your historical risk model wouldn't, say, constrain your exposure to interest rates, your sensitivity to interest rates, but going forward, you might want to do that um, in a low-volatility portfolio so that your volatility doesn't come out much higher than you expect or your returns much lower than you expect if interest rates do in fact continue rising. So that's the risk management uh, piece. Uh, You want to anticipate certain risks and build that into your risk controls that you apply to your strategies. The second piece is, can you use, are there other signals that help you navigate from a return perspective uh, these kinds of, um, you know, macro events? And, uh, you know, for example, volatility itself can be an early warning signal, right? Every major devaluation of currencies in emerging markets and many market breaks were preceded by periods of rising volatility. Rising volatility also sometimes predicts more benign environments. But the point is, if there's a signal there, maybe there's ways to predict these, these environments. And so our, uh, the top-down part of what we do tries to look at these macro events um, or potential macro events and figure out how can we anticipate those and how can we position the portfolios based on that anticipation.
1: So you mentioned a rising rate environment. Lots of folks have been focused on the Federal Reserve and focused on uh, are we gonna take a pause? I imagine that your shop doesn't spend a whole lot of time struggling with that, that it should end up in the data and it's not the sort of thing that you have to play macro tourist, or or am I giving you guys too much credit?
2: No, you know you're giving us just the right amount of credit okay. here. Uh, the um, Barry, the uh, you need to play the game that you're good at, um, and so we don't want to do uh, we don't want to try to do things that we've got other people who are much better at it than we are. And predicting um, rates using you know the Fed, what what's the Fed going to do? That's not our, as a quant manager, that's not really what we're good at, right? So you're absolutely right. There, what we would do is we would say, let's just look at what's happening with you know, the, the short-term rates, long-term rates, what's happening with the yield curve. Those can be signals that we use in a model, but we're not trying to really forecast the direction of interest rates per se through Fed statements or through other kinds of you know actions like that. Um, it just m- means trying to do what, what where we think our edge is and really trying to focus on that in terms of the things we actively do in the portfolio.
1: So you mentioned your models when I was perusing the various offerings you have for institutional clients. There are 30-something different models, maybe even more. How do you develop different ideas? How do you express them in a portfolio? Is it strictly math, or are there other guiding principles that affect that?
2: The fir- first step is always, is there a, you think of it as a story, it's really a hypothesis of why a particular characteristic is related to return. Why does? How can it be used to predict returns? What is it, what's the inefficiency that we're capturing? And if we have that, then the next step is, okay, now let's spend some time looking at the data and figuring out how do we best um, create, the, how do we best capture that inefficiency? How do we best measure it? Uh, so you know, we might have an efficiency related to momentum. Um, and back in the 70 back in the 80s, you know, you had some papers about price momentum. And they basically said, okay, the best way to capture price momentum, this is at the time, is uh, sort of a 12-month trailing risk-adjusted return, price return. Mm. That's your best momentum measure. Since then, a lot of things have changed. We've got a lot better understanding of what drives momentum. You know, what's what are the inefficiencies we're capturing with it? And, you uh, a lot more ability to um, turn that into different kinds of signals. Uh, and today, in addition, we've got machine learning. So we can put in all the historical prices and say, OK, machine learning algorithm, what do you think the best predictor of return is based on past price moves? And when you do that, you have to be careful, because machine learning is one way to do what's called overfitting a problem, right. you know, where you're, you have a great solution to the past, but it doesn't work
1: in the future. Um, one of my colleagues, Michael Batnick, once observed, "The best track record of any model is the last ten years." Something, something to that effect. Does that sound about right? Yeah.
2: So, so every model, you know, every model uh, implicitly has some potential for some degree of overfitting associated with it. We try to guard against that. We have various, you know, statistical procedures that we follow, um, and various research procedures we follow to try to avoid that. But it does creep in. Uh, no question
1: about that. We have been speaking with John Chisholm. He is the co CEO and former chief investment officer for Acadian Asset Management. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure and come back and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue to discuss all things quant. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
0: When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Welcome to the podcast. John, thank you
1: so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to this for a while. We were having a conversation in my office. And on the way out the door, someone said, who are, you, uh, who are you interviewing today? I said, oh, John Chisholm of Acadian Asset Management. And the person said, oh, I've never heard of them. Uh, do they manage any money? And my answer was spitting distance from $100 billion. And that sort of shocked some people. How, how, do, you, um, how do you feel about being a little below the radar? And, and why are you sort of poking your head out? From, from below the radar
2: so in general it's we think it's good to run a little bit below the radar right. Um, right there's there's elements of first of all you can only manage so much money and still add value right so you just have to be careful in managing capacity um, and we also if you're um, a big name in the industry uh, you get more press attention that's in one way that's good but in another way it can also be detrimental depending on what's the type of attention um, and a lot of investors a lot of institutions especially, want managers that are very careful to focus on maintaining their ability to add value for clients by not getting too big, right? We all know managers that have grown and grown, and then sure. at some point, they, they just couldn't add value anymore. They just got too big to and, add and value. And then this, they right? shrink
1: and shrink, as we've, as we've seen with a yeah. number of uh, fa- famous hedge fund managers uh, the past decade or so.
2: Exactly. We, we just like to be maybe a little bit um, less volatile in terms of our business than that. And it's just best. it's best for our team. It's best for our clients. Um, and those are really the key considerations typically. Now sticking the head out part is it is important, I think, to have some degree of name recognition because a, we want talented people. And uh, if your potential employees don't know you are who you are, then you may not be their first uh, place of employment of choice mm-hmm. um, when there's an opportunity that might be a great fit for them. So there, there's an element of that. And also we're doing a number of new things that we haven't been uh, doing before. Uh, one of them is we've built a multi-asset strategy. So mu- historically, we've been primarily an equity firm. Uh, we have a multi-asset strategy today that has a about a, a little over a year live track record. It's done very well relative to many of its peers. Uh, it's a very quantitative approach. It's very consistent with our philosophy, uh, but it invests in equities, fixed income, uh, currency, commodities, and options. And the, the goal there is to create a income uh, return stream that's much more stable than what you get from an equity market beta. You know, that doesn't go up and down every time the market, the equity markets go up and down, but that provides a fairly consistent, typically, for example, one version of the strategy, cash plus five uh, Uh return.
1: So not quite risk parity, but definitely. It's not
2: not risk parity because we're not necessarily investing in equal risk portions. Right. It's, It's really, you can think of it more as it's related to this concept that there's uh, certain inefficiencies that operate not just in equities, but also in, in other asset classes. Um, but it also relates to specific expertise in these other asset classes, that there's uh, individual drivers say, in commodities um, that are fairly unique there, and you can capture them through these return models, and in turn, get some significant value added from that area, which you don't get in a lot of these so-called alternative risk premium strategies.
1: So you mentioned capacity. You're at eighty six billion. How much more capacity is there? Are you, are you in broad areas and equities and countries that have uh, a lot of a lot more headroom, or do you do you see limitations not so, too far down the road?
2: It varies. So uh, the emerging markets, for example, strategies is closed. New clients. When if we if a client withdraws some money, we'll add some money for an ex- give existing client more capability to invest but we're closed there. Frontier markets is closed. Emerging markets small cap is closed. Our non-US small cap, again, subject to some reallocation when there's flows out, um, is also closed. Um, But we have capacity in areas like global, like our managed volatility strategies, uh, this multi-asset strategy. So what we do is we have a very specific process to measure how much money can we invest and still meet our investment objective in each strategy and when we hit that number, we close the strategy. If we've got headroom, we tell the clients, here's how much headroom we have. Here's how much we expect to be able to add before we have to close the strategy.
1: And I've seen um, some of your long-short uh, portfolios are 190 over 30 or something like that. Am I, am I getting that more or less right?
2: Yeah, we have a variety. We have some that are pure um, market neutral, so they're equal sides long-short. Uh-huh. We have some that are 130-30, So 130% long, 30% short. And uh, then we have some other variations as well. Uh, We have what we call a diversified alpha strategy that is a slightly different ratio uh, as well. Um, But essentially, all these strategies, the idea is take advantage of the inefficiencies on the short side and the unattractive companies that we follow.
1: And all right, so 130-30 is the, the long short as opposed to Fully market neutral, which is fifty fifty, is that or yeah, or or, 100, or, or, 100 or it's
2: levered. So in, effectively, we have a global levered market neutral strategy that's about two hundred percent long, two hundred
1: percent short. Mm-hmm. Quite quite interesting. Um, let me go through some of the questions we didn't get at get to during the broadcast portion before I get to my favorite questions. Um, and there was one that I thought was kind of interesting, and I pulled this off of either your website or something you had written, quote, documented recurring behavioral errors drive irrational actions in financial markets, behaviors that are often contrary to investors' best interests. How does your firm uh, use your understanding of this to help manage money? Yeah.
2: So this goes back to how do we um, come up with these signals? So for example, one behavioral error is Investors typically are overconfident in their ability to predict future growth rates. So if you're um, buying growth stocks in the tech bubble uh, and you're looking at companies that are growing their earnings at 20, 25 percent, 30 percent or more a year or higher, um, those companies were trading in some cases at multiples north of 100 on earnings, on current earnings, and if those companies had continued growing their earnings at those very high rates for 15, 20 years, that would have been a reasonable price to pay what happened is investors didn't realize that yeah they can grow their earnings at that rate maybe for one year three years four years it's very hard to do that for 20 years Um, and so that overconfidence i think is one of the key drivers of why you see in the long term value um, working effectively what's happened the last 10 years that's interesting is Two things. One is that actually there were some companies that actually did grow their earnings for at, at really high rates for a long time. So typically people think of the internet services, you know, the Googles and Amazons and so on. Uh, those companies have been tremendously successful for a while, albeit you're starting to see a few cracks in in those growth rates now for some of these uh, some of these companies. And the other thing that's happened is just a general repricing uh, within valuation. So. Um, you had a, a certain level of dispersion where value was so successful from, say, two thousand one to two thousand seven, that the dispersion of valuation multiples shrank, and as a result, you didn't. The expensive companies weren't really that much more expensive than the slower-growing inexpensive companies, and that gave um, a little bit of a tailwind to growth over that period. I think we've pretty much worked off all that uh, all that uh, dispersion. Uh, or rather the tightening of the dispersion so we're back to more normal levels of dispersion now. So at Acadian we'd expect going forward that you're more likely to have uh, at some point soon, whether soon is, you know, next month, next year, but not not in 6 or 7 years, sometimes sooner than that. We expect to see value reassert itself and so we continue to have uh, some component of our of our factors focus on valuation.
1: So Q4 2018 fair to say that was value reasserting itself?
2: Yeah, I, I think actually a Q4 was just for us, for Acadia in particular, not a great quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was partly that actually value in some markets didn't pay off well, but it was also partly um, uh, smaller companies in general, especially in the U.S. and emerging markets, did poorly relative to larger companies. And we have in our portfolios a fair amount of exposure uh, to smaller and medium-sized companies because typically that's where we see the general inefficiencies, uh, any kind of factor, we see those uh, as being greater in that area than they are in the very large cap companies. So what hurt us in the fourth quarter, a little bit of value, but primarily just the risk of small versus large uh, biting us.
1: You you hinted earlier at ETFs um, sometimes being less efficient than other ways of expressing the same strategies. However, go back a decade or two, and there were certain strategies that you can only get through expensive alternative investments. You were paying 2 and 20 for certain strategies that you can now pay, I don't know, 50 basis points and an $8 transaction fee. So what do you make of this landscape, and what does this mean for quantitative strategies eventually migrating to some of these low-cost products?
2: Oh, I, th- I think that we've seen that trend, and there's a good reason for it, right? Investors should be looking for what's the, if I want to get a certain return and risk stream, what's the least expensive way for me to do that? And it's been great for investors, the fact that there's been pricing pressure um, on the asset management side of the business. That's actually a great thing for investors, right? It forces the investment managers to be more efficient. It pushes the overpriced products away from, you know, makes them less viable, and it um, allows strategies that can be run inexpensively but still provide value to do well uh, in the marketplace. So great for investors, tougher for asset managers. It's not as easy to make money now as an asset manager as it was you know, 10 or 15 years ago. We've seen margins for the asset management business get squeezed a little bit over the last mm-hmm. few years.
1: No no doubt about that. What, as long as we're talking about um, indexes and ETFs and price squeezes, what do you make of the argument that some of this mo- movement away from active management into passive is distorting prices.
2: I don't think we're, we're there yet um, in terms. Of, I, I, I do believe, look, there's a value to price discovery. If you had 100% of, of every, you know, all assets were passively managed, um, you wouldn't have a mechanism for price discovery. <laughs> right. But you don't, need, you don't need, you know, 70% of assets active management to get the price discovery process to work. Um, I think there's been various academic work on this.
1: Andrew Lowe, right in your backyard today. Yeah, Andrew at, uh, Lowe, MIT.
2: and and there's folks at Harvard, and and generally they um, what they come up with is that you can have a greater level of passive management than we have today, and still get the uh, you know the social benefits, if you will, of um, of the
1: price discovery process. Quite quite interesting. I know I only have you for a limited amount of time. Let me jump to some of my favorite questions we ask all our guests. Um, tell us the most important thing that people don't know about John Chisholm. Wow. Um, uh, that's a tough one.
2: And, you know, it's funny because I, I, I know you gave me the questions in advance. So that's, right. that's the one where I looked at it and I was like, I don't know if I have anything there and I just skipped it. Right. So I did not pre, did not I didn't do think your homework. about, I did not come up with an answer to that, <laughs> that particular question. Um, I would say a couple of things. One is, um, I love I love asset management. That's probably and I love investing. That's probably not a um uh, that's something that some not of the people secret. who work with me know pretty well. Mm-hmm. But it may be something that, you know, the your listening audience maybe doesn't appreciate as much. Uh and um the other thing that maybe it's something that's maybe not really directly work related is um uh two things in terms of leisure activities I love ultimate frisbee ultimate frisbee is a great sport I don't know if you know what it is uh,
1: of course I know I, but, I went to college at Stony Brook all right ultimate uh, okay. frisbee was a huge thing on campus back in the 1900s when I went to school
2: uh, so so same you know I I actually went to high school at uh, Bronx Science in the Bronx mm-hmm. here and uh it was um it, I wasn't I was not on the ultimate team but that's where I started playing with some of the guys on the team and then I Played a little bit in college, played after college, and uh, you know now there's a uh, over in Boston area. There's an over forty league. I still get a chance to go out and play every now and then. Um, well, it's
1: not a contact sport, so over yes. forty, you know,
2: it's not like rugby. Exactly. That so. That's the beauty of it. I think is that you, you get a great exercise. It's a lot of fun. It's very social, and um, and you don't kill yourself. It's not like I play basketball typically once a week as well. And uh, I'll tell you, I, I, after ACLs popping I'm, left and right, I'm, I'm limping you know, for like three or four days so I can start walking well again. <laughs> and that does not happen after Ultimate.
1: That, that's very funny. So the next question was a question I used to use as a throwaway to just do a mic check, but the answers have been so interesting, I decided to ask it while we were recording. Tell us what was your first car, the, the make model and year? If you sure. remember.
2: I'm not a car guy, but I, I do remember it was a Mazda GLC. It cost about used cost about seven hundred eight hundred dollars <laughs> right and it ran about like it cost seven or eight hundred dollars. This is probably 1984-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, it had a nice little stick shift in the right uh, wherever and, and we, we uh,
1: call those by the way today those are millennial anti-theft devices.
2: <laughs> I like that. I like that description. Um, and it was probably yeah, it was probably since I had an '84 was already used. It was probably like a 1980. I don't I don't even know, but right. probably a 1980 or something like that, or
1: '79. That's uh, interesting. Um, tell us about some of your mentors who helped guide your career.
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd have to say there's there's really some of some of my partners at Acadian, my, some of my co-founders. So Gary Brookstrom, um, you know, he uh, I started my, my first part-time job in asset management was working with him, and uh, so he was very important. We were a development stage company, so there were lots of uh, idiosyncratic things. We didn't have like an HR department. Mm-hmm. We didn't have, but but Gary was really is also really passionate about investing. Um, he's retired now, but he still invests. Uh, so I would say uh, Gary, uh, my other colleague Ron Frazier, who was a portfolio manager at Putnam before he came to join us as one of the four co-founders. Uh, Ron is a true gentleman and investment professional. Uh, taught me a lot about um, how to treat other people. Um, and so I, I would say that would be another another one of the uh, folks that I learned a lot from when
1: I first came into the business. Quite quite intriguing. Um, what about investors who influenced the way you approach the world of investing?
2: I think Ben Graham, you know, sort of the value part of, of that principle. And again, even though value hasn't been great the last ten years, um, just the way he thought about um, how do you make an investment decision. Uh, you know, a lot of things came from Ben Graham. Um, uh, I'd say he's important, um, and then I would say there's people outside of investment, uh, outside of investment area, who but who have lessons for investing. So Michael Lewis, you know, when he wrote back in the '80s, he wrote "Liar's Poker." Sure, and uh, uh, that book actually, even though it's not technically an investing book, it's certainly not a textbook, but it has a lot of interesting information that uh, someone who's coming into the investment industry for the first time, you know, it's a great book to read, or it was certainly at the time a great book to read. Uh, so I found that that's another example of something where you can learn a lot, even though it's not technically an investment book.
1: Huh. Speaking of books, let's talk about some of your favorite books. What do you read for fun? What do you read for work? Investing, non-investing, fiction, nonfiction?
2: Yeah. So I like um, two things. I, nonfiction books can be great. Um, I mentioned Michael Lewis, uh, Liars Poker. His new book is a book about actually the transfer power between the Obama and column. Trump. The fifth column. You know it. Okay. So I've read that, and again, this, the stories there—it's just—it's interesting because he, he has this way. He has this way of getting into you know, sort of getting into the detailed situation, learning enough about the milieu, and talking to enough people, and then it's both humorous and, as you say, horrifying. But it's—it's it's educational too. You know, totally. you learn a lot. So, so that that would be an example of a non-fiction, a type of nonfiction book.
1: I, I love the way he finds these eclectic characters. And the story is always unwound through these unusual people. The person that's, from the Weather Channel, and it's just, that's a fascinating book.
2: And then the the personal stuff, um, I would say, uh, would be, um, I, I read some occasionally, not not it's not a huge volume nowadays, but consistently over the last 20, 30 years, I'll try to find some science fiction stories. And by science fiction, I mean not um, fantasy. I guess this is the aerospace engineer in me. Not sort of the fantasy version, but the, the sort of hard science,
1: like the three-body problem, or anything. Yeah, that ones? would be
2: one. Or um, uh, Alice, uh, Redemption. There's a Redemption space series that I'm currently reading. Um,
1: Redemption space. Who's the author there?
2: Uh, okay, you Alastair. So I've I've just finished the first one of the series. There's about it's about a six book series, and I'm, I'm embarked on the second, and I'll have to get back to you on Alice. On, uh, we'll... uh, if you could do Redemption.
1: Uh, let's see let's what Google see. has to say about this. Redemption Arc, yeah. by Alastair Reynolds. Reynolds, sorry, Reynolds. The second book in the Revelation Space series. Yes. All right.
2: So Re- Revelation Space is the name of this series. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And so that, I knew that, you were going to go
1: sci-fi. That, I, that, I that had would... a, a feeling.
2: <laughs> Very predictable. That that would be an example of. Uh, that's when I'm reading. It's an older series. I think they started. I started writing those around you know, 20 years ago or 18 years ago. But that's an example of the kind of sort of... It's a little bit harder science fiction with a lot of speculative stuff thrown right. in. It's kind of fun um, to just think about technology and the impact technology can have in the very long term. And I find certain types of science fiction writers... Another example would be, that's a little older, would be uh, Larry Niven. Larry
1: Ringworld, engineers. Yeah, exactly. I knew you were yeah, going to go... Those kinds of things. <laughs> exactly. Uh, those, those books, the whole series of Ringworld um, from Niven... He was amazing. Yeah,
2: he had a great way of coming up with these ideas and then sort of making, I mean, I think the quality of, the, of his writing over time varied a little bit, but certainly the, the examples like Ringworld, um, A Mote in God's Eye, sure. that he co-wrote with Jerry Purnell, those are examples of books that, uh, you know, there's a lot of creative thinking and they're entertaining stories as well.
1: They they start with the framework and then the characters yeah. and the and the plot really move along. Any other ones you want to mention before we move on? That that's a that's a really good collection. I'm a giant Larry Niven fan, okay. and Didn't I had a that. feeling I had a feeling you were uh, you were heading in that direction. <laughs> um, so uh, what what excites you right now? What about the world of investing has you really enthusiastic, looking forward to the future?
2: I think I mentioned earlier we're early days with respect to things like machine learning and mm-hmm. big data. And I think there's a potential for significant transformation. So you've got this historical division of quant and you know, traditional or fundamental uh, investors where the quants go broad but maybe not that deep and the traditional investors go very deep but they may, may not be quite as broad. Um, I think we're at a point where we're gonna be able to start going broad and deep because of these, these kinds of both the, on the data side and then the ability to interpret the data using machine learning. You have to be very careful with machine learning. It's prone to overfitting, so you've got to build in some safeguards to avoid that. And we're still learning best practices. You know, what are, what are the best techniques to use um, in, in driverless cars? People talk about neural nets. Neural nets, you know, can easily find the best fit to historic data, um, but not always guaranteed to outperform um, just a standard linear statistical model historic with with future data and so uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity there for us to to learn and do better in that area and that, that kind of stuff is very exciting both for me and it turns out when you talk to uh, young people coming into the quantitative research area that's that, those are the kinds of things they're excited in working on
1: I, I can imagine so tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience
2: yeah I mean there's there's probably plenty of um, Plenty of areas. One area would be, uh, in many ways, I was kind of lucky. I I went to a good school. Um, I was good at taking exams. Um, Got a job that you know we had the aerospace job, but the investment job, and that turned into a company. And I've been very fortunate in the people I've worked with. So I've always things have kind of worked, been kind of successful. And when it came time to go through the um, CEO search process. you know, one of the things we did is we took these. Uh, I guess you administer different kinds of. They're not just personality exams, but they're sort of inventories of your managerial leadership capabilities. And so, what when you take one of these, they ask you to rate yourself, and then all your peers and all your colleagues at the company do the same thing, and you can sort of compare. Here's where I think I am, and I, I'm doing this as a gesture, but I'll explain in a minute for your audience. <laughs> Here's where everybody else thinks I am. So it was very humbling to find out I had a very high opinion of. Uh, my strategic thinking and um, my ability to, you know, bring people to a consensus or to pull behind a decision. And um, some of my colleagues observed that there were aspects of my decision making that, you know, they didn't uh, appreciate as much potentially as I would have thought they might have. Um, And so that was humbling, but it was also great because, you know, really hearing other people's honest feedback is something that not everybody gets easily. And this was sort of an anonymous process, so it was a little filtered, but you can sort of see uh, here are some areas where I actually you know, could be doing better than I, than I was. Um, so I, I, an area where I, where I think of as failed is um, my self-image was miscalibrated relative to where everybody else was. Uh, on the plus side, that's a, that's a learning exp- uh, opportunity because you can say, okay, here's some things I could work on, I could try to do better. And if, even if I can't do better because I am who I am, Maybe it's good to have an appreciation for some of my shortcomings.
1: I, I love the way you phrase that as an engineer would. My my self image was miscalibrated <laughs> with the with the rest of the uh, the rest of the office. That's funny. Um, so, if a millennial or a recent college grad came to you and said they were considering a career in either quantitative research or asset management, what sort of advice would you give them? I'd say,
2: if you're if this is something that you're excited in, you're interested in, absolutely. It, it's can still be a tremendously exciting and rewarding career. I do think it's very different than the environment that I faced 30 years ago, right? When you're entering something that's sort of new and greenfield, you know there's not a lot of established right. players, um, you've got a lot of opportunity. Um, it could go completely astray, in which case you have to go to plan B. But um, you've got a lot of opportunity. We've got a more mature industry now. There's lots of established competitors. And so it's harder to come in and have an immediate big impact on, on a firm or established investment process. Um, it, you know, it's going to take more work, and it's going to take some time. Um, so you've got to be prepared for that. You know, if, if, you're, if you want to um, you know, develop the next great idea, there's still scope to do that, but um, you're doing it within the context, typically, of a, of a bigger existing uh, process and firm. Uh, another area, though, might be fintech. So fintech, you know, the retail investors, I think, still are not, sure, fees have come down somewhat, you've got lots of index funds, you've got ETFs, but they're still not served as well in terms of the sort of advice and planning portion uh, as they potentially could be. And so, you know, some of these fintech companies, I think there there are some uh, potentially disruptive ideas that either we are seeing, or some of them may pan out, some of them may not, but that may be an interesting area as well to consider beyond pure investment
1: management. Quite, quite intriguing. Uh, and our final question, what do you know about the world of quantitative investing today you wish you knew when you were starting out 30 years ago?
2: There, there's a couple of lessons. One is um, the importance of risk control. I mentioned um, if you're just betting on a single factor, a single signal, there could be a lot of risk associated uh, with that exposure in a portfolio. You need to manage that risk effectively. That's really important. A second thing is the the payoffs to factors um, can change a lot over time. I I think I intellectually I think my I and my colleagues appreciated that, uh, but there may be ways to manage those uh, the the expectation of those payoffs using um, models that help predict how well value is going to work or quality or momentum is going to work, and uh, and so the. Uh, importance of having such models and incorporating them into your process is something I would love to appreciate, say, before uh, 2008,
1: for example. (laughs) Quite fascinating. Thank you, John, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with John Chisholm. He is the co-CEO and former chief investment officer for Acadian Asset Management. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch Uh, on Apple iTunes or wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you can see the other, let's call it 230 or so, such conversations we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Please write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. If you enjoy this conversation, go to Apple iTunes and be sure to give us a five-star rating. Uh, Check out my daily column on bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps put together this conversation each week. Medina Parwana is our producer and Charles Vollmer is our returning audio engineer and all-time champion. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Uh, Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.